Hello and welcome to Holistic Health Chats, a podcast where we chat about all things holistic women's health and everything in between. I'm your host, Selene Douglas, a women's health nutritionist with a focus on helping women to heal holistically and live pain and symptom free. I'm so happy that you've made your way here. Tune in every week so we can listen, learn and be inspired together. I was lucky enough to get the call back on one of my favorite podcasts, Health, Happiness, and Humankind. In this week's episode of Holistic Health Chats, I'm resharing a recent conversation I shared with Steph Lowe where we explore thyroid health. Thyroid issues, including hypothyroidism, Hashimoto's, and Graves are conditions that I work with frequently in clinic, and I have no doubt that if this is something you've struggled with, then you will find some value in this episode. Steph and I cover the key nutrients that you need to make your thyroid hormones, the problems with only testing TSH, the challenges inherent in the standard intervention of only thyroxine. We also cover autoimmunity, prescribing of therapeutic doses of selenium and the benefits and pitfalls of iodine supplementation. And of course, so much more. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation just as much as I did. Before we do jump into this week's episode, if you are currently wanting to get some personalized advice to support you with your nutrition and hormones, the best place to start is by booking in a complimentary consultation. In this 15-minute consultation, we will discuss your current health challenges or goals. We will also cover what you can expect from consultations, the likely time frame that it will take for us to achieve these together, and we'll also cover any questions that you may have. If you're wanting to go ahead at the end of this consult, we will find a time for your initial consultation, but equally, if you need a little time to think about it further, that's perfectly okay too. To book yourself in for a complimentary consultation, all you need to do is head to select lenndouglas.com forward slash links and navigate to the book section, or you can also find this link over in the show notes. I hope to meet you very soon. Hello, Selene. Welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Steph. It's always a pleasure to be on your show. Yeah, my pleasure as well. I've loved our last couple of episodes, um, certainly getting lots of great feedback from our listeners. And today I think won't be an exception, knowing how prevalent we see thyroid issues in clinic. But to set the scene today, I would love to, to talk about why I guess we're seeing thyroid issues and who is more of a candidate for that per se. Yep. So I think in general, we know that women are more susceptible to developing thyroid issues. So it's up to eight times more common in women than men. And I believe largely that's because of the role of estrogen and our different hormonal fluctuations that we might go through throughout our life, making us more susceptible to the development of thyroid conditions, whether that's, you know, just like low thyroid function or uh, an autoimmune condition. And then in terms of periods of our life, it's really those uh, times when we go through large hormonal fluctuations. So whether that's uh, going on and off different types of birth control, uh, having a baby, uh, mm-hmm. postpartum, obviously as well. So there's there's actually the the pregnancy itself um, requiring us to produce fifty percent more hormone than we would normally in that first trimester because the baby's thyroid hasn't developed yet. So we're needing to produce that for them, and then. Also, when we go through menopause as well, because we've seen these huge highs and lows and then eventually the fall in estrogen in that sort of latter half of um, once you have gone through menopause. So all of these different changes are when we are more susceptible. And then I guess personally what I see in clinic, and I'd love to know about you, I often see sort of the hormonal fluctuation coupled with a very stressful event. Um, or a very stressful few years, like kind of like chronic stress pictures quite frequently what I'll see. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think that's a big part of the conversation whenever we see mm. a thyroid picture that's not optimal. We might just, before we go any further, just talk about um, a couple of kind of acronyms that we use. And then I do want to talk about testing as well, because this is where I think you can get a lot of information around the circumstances that you're in, like you mentioned things like pregnancy and postpartum. Mm. And then of course, for women, it really is their whole menstrual cycle life, which is a big, big, 
you know, part of our life. So just to set the scene when it comes to, say, your thyroid, I think a lot of people are quite familiar with having their TSH tested. And I know we've defined this on the show many times before, but for the new listeners, can we sort of unpack TSH and a little bit more about how we actually understand our true thyroid function? Yeah, for sure. So TSH stands for thyroid stimulating hormone, and it's really it's it's not something that's produced in the thyroid. I think that's mm. first thing to understand. Um, it is the brain's communication with the thyroid gland, and the way I explain it to my clients is that it's the brakes or the accelerator on the gland. So what we're really looking at when we're looking at TSH is how fast or how slow, or rather how much or how little hormone the brain is actually telling the thyroid to produce. Where I think it's confusing is that uh, actually on your blood test. So if you were to go to your GP or um, healthcare provider and say, I'm experiencing XYZ, you know, maybe you've already done some Googling and you think it could be your thyroid Mm. and you're potentially mentioning that they might send you off for TSH. That would be quite routine. Very rarely you would get T4 done as well, which we'll get into, but TSH is routinely done. And even on the the blood test results, it will say thyroid function. And then under it will be listed TSH and the results. So obviously in looking at that, one would assume that that uh, outlines <laughs> the thyroid function, but it's just not the case. And I think, mm. again, we've talked a lot about, you know, issues with reference ranges, but this is a really big issue with this reference range is that uh, I see um, a that depending on sort of which state you're in, sometimes there can even be differences in what labs will consider um, to be normal. But the reference range of what's considered, you know, air quotes normal for TSH is sometimes 0.5 or even lower, up to four, which is really really high. Like if you had came, if I had a client with a TSH of 3.5, I would be quite concerned, especially if they had symptoms um, that they had very low thyroid function. So the higher your TSH is, really that's indicating that your brain is saying to your thyroid, hey, wake up, produce more hormone. Mm. Why is there not enough hormone? Let's really put the sort of foot on the gas here. Whereas if there's a really low amount of, thi- of TSH, sorry, that is potentially indicating that your brain is kind of like putting the foot on the brakes, right? And saying, whoa, 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 there's enough thyroid hormone here. That being said, that's kind of, I think, best case scenario if things are working really well, if that communication is really nice between your brain and your thyroid. But personally, I see a lot of inconsistencies with TSH levels and the actual thyroid hormone levels. So sometimes your TSH can actually look fine. What we would consider fine would be maybe sitting between one and two or like just outside of two and your thyroid hormones can look very not fine. Mm. (laughs) And I think what's been indicated from the research is that your TSH can actually look air quotes normal for up to 10 years, but while there is sort of underlying dysfunction going on, whether it's with the hormones or um, even with the antibodies as well, which we'll get into shortly. So I think sort of first issue with testing is like the reference range itself is far too wide. And so that means that if you are going to say your GP and you're having that TSH tested, even if we would perhaps consider it to be too high and that there's an issue we want to investigate, it's quite likely that you'll be told that there's it's fine and it's not mm-hmm. high enough to warrant further investigation. And then the secondary issue, I think, is that TSH in itself is a marker that I don't believe we can particularly be relying on, particularly if someone is symptomatic. Yeah, I think there's some really important points because we do often see on someone's testing script TFT, which stands for thyroid function test. So the client thinks, oh, great, I've really been heard. We're going to study my whole thyroid function and I can really get to the bottom of these symptoms I'm having. And then because of how the system is set up with Medicare, only TSH is tested because unless it's outside their wide reference range, there is no quote unquote justification to do T4 or to, T- yeah. to do T3, obviously our two main thyroid hormones in this conversation. So that's where I think, yeah, there's a lot of confusion around what's actually being examined. 
Mm. And then equally, I find people get confused by that inverse relationship. Like we sometimes Mm. we're taught to think that higher is better. Okay, so I want high normal iron, but you don't want a high TSH because that indicates that your thyroid is actually underactive. And that's where we see a a lot more common in clinic when when we see, you know, fat loss resistance or libido issues or, you know, gosh, hair issues like that the list goes on anything that kind of falls under that vitality banner in terms of digestive issues constipation etc and so yeah we definitely don't want to see a high tsh but equally too many people are trained to think that you know a three of 3.5 or a four is normal and to, to us that's a lot on the dashboard saying take action now mm. please don't wait 10 years until there's potentially some irreversible damage and that's a big flaw in our understanding of thyroid function and then obviously the development of issues over time. Yeah, I absolutely. I think it's it's such a like huge area and I if I suspect it particularly with symptoms, even if someone's TSH is, you know, quote unquote normal, I am often still having that discussion with them and saying I think it's worth ruling out because mm. So often, you know, I had a client even just recently who uh, her TSH was normal, but her symptoms sort of indicated otherwise and her antibodies came back in the thousands. And I had two so, in one day last week in the clinic. And mm. it's just like these women would never have never have had antibodies tested unless we no. knew otherwise, like working holistically. Mm. Sorry, I cut you off there. No, no, you're right. Mm. Yeah. And so what I'm also starting to see a little bit more of, which I think is fascinating, is that so the TFTs are approved, but only TSH is tested. So we don't then have the two main hormones, T3 or T4, but sometimes antibodies are added, which I think mm. is at least good to see because I hate the blind spots. I don't want to assume just because someone's got a TSH of one or two, that they don't have at least even an onset of some, you know, mm-hmm elevated antibodies so i'm i'm loving seeing that just more recently um but to be clear i think yeah there there can be too many blind spots if you're only having tsh tested yeah and then i think the if if tsh is out of that hugely wide reference range anyway then the next step might be that t4 is tested Mm. again we're not getting the full picture we're only getting t4 so t4 being that sort of that inactive or that sort of first hormone i explained that's produced and it's more so the storage form of thyroid hormone but it's not actually active within your body to know what effect this might be having on you symptomatically we really need t3 as well and then you know even if we were to get T4 and T3 and perhaps there were some inconsistencies there and they came back low well we also want to see the antibodies right to know how we might proceed with that because if there is any level of autoimmunity there we might approach that quite differently to just say low thyroid function. Yeah I agree and I want to talk about some of the key raw materials because this Mm -hmm. is what really fascinates me as a nutritionist looking at okay so what do we actually require to produce our thyroid hormones and then equally, you know, where do we go when someone's having challenges? Of course, understanding those associated deficiencies in the raw Mm. material to me can be really interesting. So I'll ask you about those in a moment. And then, of course, we need to know that if there is autoimmunity because there'd be recommendations that we would exclude And then I love having the free T4 and the free T3 so that we can calculate that ratio. Mm. We're normally looking for that beautiful three to one ratio. So, you know, that's a simple calculation. But when that ratio is either too high or too low, we can really start to dial in on what raw materials we need more of. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so the I guess the raw materials, when you're talking about that, it's looking at the nutrients that are actually required in order to produce those two hormones. And what I explain to my clients is that like our body runs off the currency really of micronutrients. Every mm. reaction, every hormone production requires a certain amount of raw material being micronutrients, things like iron, iodine, B12, B6, in order to carry out those necessary functions. And so when we have deficiencies present, uh, it means that 
it's likely our body won't be very efficient at carrying out the activities that it needs to. And thyroid hormone production is really no exception. So I think the key raw materials we need there are things like iodine, zinc, selenium, uh, and then iron and vitamin D as well, Mm. really. And I think in general, we always want to look at things like B vitamins and magnesium as well, but they would be those key ones. And then tyrosine as well. So selenium, we get I guess few foods really that provide selenium because of, um, I know you've talked about this a bit on the show, but soil depletion in Australia, Mm. like I often find it, it's an interesting conversation with clients because they're always saying, so like what foods can I get it from? Right. And yeah, it does fast. I always sort of, I don't say afraid, but sort of thinking that in a few years, like what foods will, how, how do we know what foods contain certain nutrients anymore if our sort mm. of soil quality is going downhill? But Brazil nuts are a great source of selenium. So we need that to actually help us convert T4 into T3. So that's storage form of thyroid hormone into the active form. Um, selenium is also really important because it helps to helps the thyroid to basically remove any damaged um, cells which might be present. This is really, really important if you do have an autoimmune condition Mm. present. So selenium, we can talk about that more, but that's sort of one of the first things I look at if someone has an autoimmune condition in the thyroid. It is sort of a higher dose selenium. We'll just stay there for a second. Um, We'll we'll probably have a bit of a segue here. But I, I just love this conversation because it's such a natural way to approach mm. say autoimmunity when for a lot of our female clients they've only ever really been told they need to take thyroxin and usually for life mm. and i've spoken about this on instagram and a lot of people just found it so amazing that like there's some there's a nutrient that's available <laughs> that has incredible you know scientific literature surrounding it but we're not being offered it Yes. And that thyroxin conversation is what I want to have with you probably a little bit later as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we can touch on it now if, if you mm-hmm. want and sort of come back to it, but come back to the raw materials conversation. But I think very, very commonly someone might, or a client of ours might be, you know, diagnosed with an autoimmune condition, prescribed thyroxine, and then one, you know, 12 months, two years later, maybe they felt better initially, but you know, it's either stalled or they're no longer feeling any better. And those symptoms of low thyroid function are really still plaguing them. And so they might look for, you know, an air quote, alternate solution. And that's very, very common. And I think what's important to understand here is that thyroxine is T4 and mm-hmm. we need T3. And mm-hmm. we also need to have well-controlled antibodies so that our thyroid tissue is not being destroyed continually. And thyroxine doesn't help with either of those things. So it's kind of like logical. I don't think you really need to have too much of a sciencey background to understand that if you're sort of prescribing thyroxine and doing nothing else, so that's like the standalone intervention, then maybe you make someone's TSH look a little bit better in some instances. You might increase that T4, but you're really doing very little for the hormone that's actually active within their body. And you're also doing very little for the antibodies, which means they're going to keep feeling like crap at the end of the day. And quite commonly uh, what what I would see is that someone would go back to their GP, even the endocrinologist in some instances and say, I'm not really feeling any better, or perhaps I feel like I've regressed. And then that dosage is increased Mm -hmm. and nothing else is really done. Is that... Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, like you said, the logic, I just can't wrap my head around why we're still recommending T4 only. And it is often the standalone intervention in Australia, Mm. whereas in other countries, including the US, they have a lot, like a bigger suite of of using like combination therapy and even desiccated thyroid. And Australia is just, it doesn't have that in our standard of care. Yeah. And they they tend to criticize the alternate therapies. So it's never then made available. And yeah, just that, that conversation around just take more, just take more, just take more with that dosage increase to me is a big flaw because Mm -hmm. you're not addressing the root cause. So how are you ever going to solve the issue And this is why people think that they need to be on it for life rather Mm. than having the knowledge that they can actually do a lot to put their condition into remission. Yeah, definitely. And I think like 
going back to selenium being one of those really amazing nutrients for things like Hashimoto's. I do have sort of a little excerpt here from a study and it showed that basically there was, so it was quite a small study, only 71 patients with Hashimoto's, all of which of course do have an autoimmune condition. So there were those high levels of antibodies um, and half of the participants were given uh, selenium supplementation at a dosage of the 200 micrograms per day with thyroxine so combined Mm -hmm. treatment for a 90-day period and the other half were given just thyroxine and a placebo and those with the selenium supplementation were shown to have a 40% decrease in antibodies Mm -hmm. within that 90-day period whereas the placebo so those that had the thyroxine but no selenium supplementation so selenium um thyroxine alone only showed a 10% decrease and most interestingly in the group that had the thyroxine and selenium, 24% had completely normalized their antibodies within that uh, 90-day period, which is incredible. The other thing in Australia, the TGA makes these statements that 150 micrograms of selenium (laughs) is toxic. So I have clients like, you know, politely questioning my recommendation Mm. when we've got clinical trials off 200 and many, not just one small study, although I do love that study that you've referenced. Mm. I'll pop it in the show notes. But um, many examples of 200 micrograms being very safe and these recommendations that the Therapeutic Goods Administration make, again, I think remove this opportunity because people don't understand that it can be really safe Mm. and relatively short-term. That's what I want. I don't want a Mm. pharmaceutical intervention ever, not to mention, you know, forever (laughs) yeah 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 and quite often I think in those sorts of clients I'm always recommending that they we do that for a period of even just short term like eight Mm. weeks to start and then that they're actually going back and having those antibodies and hormones all retested at that time because things can change really positively really quickly and it particularly if you are taking something like thyroxine that needs to be monitored which again often isn't emphasized enough that this is something that needs to be like checked on on an ongoing basis particularly when you are say introducing new things that are going to improve your thyroid function it's not uncommon that your dosage will then be reduced which is obviously what we want but really important that that's sort of continually monitored Yeah, well, let's expand on this while we're here, because that's the other thing about, you know, often the dosage is set and forget Mm. until the female goes back and says, hey, I'm not feeling any better. And then they're offered more. You know, there's, there's to me, unfortunately, too many examples of where it's very mismanaged, because we're often, especially if it's Hashimoto's, we're often told that it's for life which I strongly disagree with because we've seen so many examples of remission and then there's no conversation about retesting and I have a huge problem with this because it can go either way the example you gave earlier is where it's not working and more is offered but let's think about the client who then starts doing a lot more like looking at Mm. the raw materials which we'll get back to looking at the stress management, they are then taking too much T4, Mm. so it's considered over-replacement, and we see their TSH go from high to low and they start having symptoms of an overactive thyroid, so anxiety, heart palpitations, diarrhoea, excessive weight loss, et cetera, and so it's swung the other way Mm. and it's not until you ask them to go back and test their TSH do we see that, actually their dosage needs to be significantly reduced. Mm. Yeah, 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 which can be, I think, like frightening for a lot of people, like the symptoms of high thyroid function are things like your heart beating really fast, irregular heartbeat, palpitations, sweating, anxiety, a really kind of um, like looping thoughts and sort Mm -hmm. of hyperactive mind, like very, very unpleasant. You could literally feel like you're losing your mind. And, yeah, it is really important that, you are going back. And I think even if all you are doing is taking the medication, like 
there needs to be some sort of conversation or timeline put into place about how and when that's going to be reassessed because Mm -hmm. things do change. Like life circumstances could change, all sorts of things could change. And so um, weight as well. Like we know that, yeah, heavier people, that conversation around the brain that you mentioned earlier, the reason why we see TSH increase in weight gain is because, yeah, the body's needing more more hormones. And so if you lose weight... Mm. And that changes what your requirements are. Similarly, if you were to gain weight, like, and I'm not just talking about one or two kilos, but if you're taking this medication for a long period of time, there could be relatively significant weight fluctuations for some people. But I don't think that conversation's ever being had. Yeah, absolutely. I had a client last year who actually has Graves. So Mm -hmm. uh, an autoimmune condition different to Hashimoto. She had an overactive thyroid gland, Mm -hmm. but she was also very, very insulin resistant. So she had an insulin of 24. And when we had started working together, her, uh, it was her endocrinologist had basically said, you have two options at this point, because your thyroid is essentially like there's no coming back from where you're at is sort of what she'd been told was um, radioactive iodine therapy or complete thyroidectomy. So complete removal of the gland. That's like very sort of concerning advice when you're Mm. like a young 40 year old female, she's not, you know, have your, your thyroid gland removed or radioactive iodine therapy. And anyway, we did like very basic things, addressed her insulin so in a period of around 90 days she got it from 24 to 12 and simple things like what we're talking about looking at the raw materials and then just really looking at stress levels and looking at some sort of immune and anti-inflammatory support with omega-3s and things like that and her now she but what are we now well it's been nearly probably nine months we've been working together now but her all of her antibody levels have normalized. She's now only taking her medication three times a week. So it's been continually Mm. dropped and dropped and dropped. And it was just so interesting for me because her endocrinologist basically like belittled her in that appointment when she said that she was, can I please just have, you know, three months to work on this with this nutritionist and I'll come back and have my levels and things tested and blah, blah, blah. And her endocrinologist essentially was like, yeah, good luck, but it's not going to do anything kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And in going back and obviously seeing the proof in the pudding with her results, his response has sort of been like, oh, well, yeah, I had no idea these things could sort of work and I'll have to go mm. back and have a look at the research and baffling to me because I'm like, it's it's there. Like it's not, this is not some kind of like woo-woo, I don't know, like witch doctor <laughs> potion that I've put her on. Like mm. these are really basic things. Yeah, it's crazy. It it's is. Just- it, it's actually mind-blowing because a lot of people, like we, to get to the point of working with an endocrinologist is kind of major in itself. Like mm. you don't start there. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I'm sure they're incredible and they're very well of respected. Yeah. I, I know you agree. However, the gaps in what else we might offer is is the issue that we keep coming back to around. Okay, so if you're a, a doctor or an endocrinologist and you truly believe that a T4 therapy like thyroxine can work, do that. But can we have more of a conversation Mm. around the conversion piece and the nutrient deficiencies and what else could be driving this? And, you know, so the the removal of the thyroid, to me, it's like the human body is not separate organ systems, right? We, We have to move away from our archaic days of just pulling out appendixes and thyroids because we think they're not optimal or functional you know if you if you have your thyroid pulled out you need to be taking synthetic hormones for life you know Mm. that that's where the medication is absolutely required for life and I had a client who came to me many decades after having her thyroid removed and so she was on thyroxine but she ended up in emergency with major heart palpitations truly believing she was having a heart attack because she was on massive over replacement because she was given a certain dosage off the back of having the thyroid removed. And like we've been clearly saying, it was never reassessed. Mm. And that was many years ago for me now, but it was a huge wake-up call as to how poorly thyroxine dosages and sort of retesting timelines are managed, poorly, poorly managed across the board. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I'm not saying like, you know, I'm very much of the opinion that we want to be working with your endocrinologist and with your GP Mm. and kind of, that collaborative care approach 
and you know eventually it would be nice to see that more so reciprocated I think as well acknowledging like you said that there are things that we can do for our clients from a nutritional perspective and even like lifestyle suggestions as well that have huge improvements in their symptoms like I'm not saying there's not a place for thyroxine there obviously Mm. is of course but I'm just saying I guess it shouldn't be the standalone intervention yeah, well said. And I think the collaboration is essential. Like I don't prescribe thyroxine, so I don't say take less. I say it looks like over-replacement. Your TSH is very low. Let's get you back to your doctor and have this conversation mm. and I potentially even write a little bit of a script to help them mm. engage in that dialogue. I never say decrease, cut out your Sunday, go down to any, anything. Like that's not my job. I don't want to cross the line there. But I think with the te- how big you and I both are on testing and, and retesting, it becomes pretty clear what's mm. going on and, and, and therefore we, we need the team to be open-minded to, to take that collaborative approach. Yeah, yeah. I think generally people are once they can see that there's been an improvement. <laughs> yeah, the proof is in the pudding, like you said. Yeah. Let's circle back to the raw material. Yes. So we were talking about selenium. So that, that one I think is, yeah, the research is very clear and especially for, say, the Hashimoto's example that you articulated. So I love that. Um, yes. so let's continue from there. Yeah, so another one would be um, iodine. So um, mm-hmm. iodine, again, being sort of like a, a trace mineral that we get from, again, we would have gotten it from soil, but that's sort of quite questionable. We get it now a little bit from seafood products and from things like kelp, dulse flakes, those sorts of things. Um, that's generally my preference from a food-based perspective rather than, say, an iodized salt, just because, mm-hmm. again, it is a synthetic product. But, you know, if someone's really averse to including those from those foods in their diet, then I do think that that can be beneficial. So um, iodine is really, really important for us to actually produce and convert our thyroid hormones. So again, Mm -hmm. T4 and T3. And so when I'm saying, I guess, produce and convert, like, again, if you say are put on thyroxine and that's improving your T3, um, T4, pardon me, but then you have these deficiencies present, what that's indicating is that you can be not very good at then converting that T4 into T3, right? Mm. And so T3 is that active hormone, which is then going to mean you've got all this T4 available, but you don't have those raw materials to actually then move that into what's going to be active in your body. And Mm -hmm. so that is a really clear situation in which regardless of sort of an autoimmune type picture, you could, you know, be on thyroxine, but still be quite symptomatic because you don't have enough of this T3 present. Um, And so that would be quite common. Now, this always comes up with iodine and and sort of autoimmune conditions about whether, um, whether or not you should completely stay away from it. And some people do recommend that. I do think it's sort of a case by case basis and that you should avoid like really large dosages. Um, so that would be say over the 200 micrograms a day outside of, um, pregnancy. Obviously you do need a little bit more when you are pregnant. I think that that range goes up to about 270 or 290, Mm. but large doses over that are shown that they can increase your thyroglobulin or thyroperoxidase antibodies. And even outside of an existing autoimmune condition, I believe there are papers showing that um, in populations where they increased the uh, fortified iodine in certain foods, whether that's cereals, breads, um, salts, those sorts of things, dramatically increased it. There was a significant increase in the incidence of elevated thyroid antibodies in those populations as well. So again, it's one of those things where it's like more isn't always beneficial. If say you do have a deficiency in iodine and, and we've been able to test that in your urine, then yeah, we do want to correct that. My approach, if you have uh, an autoimmune condition is to go very slow and retest. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't agree more. I think there's a, a lot of kind of pieces wrapped up in here. Like just as a side note, I do want to re- regroup with you to talk about thyroid nodules at a later mm-hmm. stage, but if like 35% of thyroid issues have a nodule and we don't know if they're hot or cold, then we really shouldn't be using 
high doses of iodine because that's very detrimental in the case of a hot nodule, which is more commonly associated with a very low TSH, so an overactive thyroid, and rare, only about 10% of the cases in total, but still like with a blind spot, you've got a blind spot. So imagine if you were just taking iodine not testing urine and then like making the problem worse accidentally. Like that's Mm. just a a sort of mild concern of mine. And then I work with clients like you that have endocrinologists that say things that are quite blunt, like urine iodine testing is not accurate, you know, or you you can never take iodine. I think Mm. it's way more nuanced than Mm. that. And I think that's where it's important to have that holistic view and ideally be open to, a bit more testing so you haven't got any blind spots and therefore the whole treatment is, I guess, as clear and as appropriate as possible. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Because it is a really sensitive gland. I think it can move either way, like Mm -hmm. very, very quickly. Um, And so, yeah, it is important to, to have all of that information on hand. And then the other thing I, I think, with obviously we we want to use food sources but personally when i especially in the case of an autoimmune condition i often am relying on supplements at least short term because then we have like we know how much you're getting whereas mm-hmm. say if you're you, you know googling like oh great i've got to increase my iodine and you know you start taking a supplement and then you start eating all these dulse flakes and all these sorts of things just very quickly it's very easy to end up overdosing on these sorts of things. Um, If you're using food and supplement forms, obviously we want to rely on food long-term, but I do think in the interim when we're kind of really looking at controlling what's going on, it is more beneficial often to use sort of like standardized doses. Well, therapeutic doses, that's what we come back to. That's why we would use a supplement over a food. And yeah, I had one example, uh, I think late last year where she had a natal, so that was the 270, the upper limit of the iodine. She was also taking the beautiful forage for you, which has kelp in there. Mm-hmm. She was eating kelp. She, I think she was doing more sort of Japanese foods. And I've never seen an iodine so high. I was like, I had to like read it a couple of times. It was in the thousands. I can't quite mm. recall the exact number, but if we're normally looking for about a hundred of normal or bottom end of normal, like I just, yeah, I was really quite concerned as to what that long t- term damage could be if she hadn't tested to identify that she didn't need as much and not a lot of people realize that fortification you know you mentioned iodized salt that's Mm. obviously an isolated example but that is mandated to be used in breads and cereals in australia and obviously our clients don't tend to eat a lot of those foods but if somebody is they're actually already consuming a lot of iodized salt. Now that's not our preferential form, but it's still iodine. So the mm. big picture, like, and you can't get out a calculator and say, okay, I'm having this much bread and this much iodine. So you never know how much you're having. So it is very gray. And in this example, potentially risky, which I think is a unique example that iodine mm. provides. Yeah, definitely. And then the other thing, I guess, the sort of additional layer here is mentioning that, you need, if you're having iodine in your diet, you need selenium in there as well, Mm. because iodine also sort of, again, one of those nutrients that helps us to move T4 into T3. And in that process, there are some different, um, I guess, products which can be produced that our body needs to clear. And selenium is one of those nutrients that really helps us to kind of neutralize those things. And it, it makes these things called selenoproteins, which essentially help to kind of mop up the any kind of any kind of inflammation and damage, I suppose, mm. in the gland. So if you are looking at iodine, you also always want to be looking at selenium as well, because it's kind of one of those yin and yang nutrients. We have lots of examples of those in the body. And you see them together in any kind of thyroid mm. blend if we're talking about supplements and, and, and natals and prenatals and things like that. It's, there's a reason for it. Yes. <laughs> so when you start going down that isolated nutrient route, like doing iodine drops or something, it can be a bit problematic. And I think about that a lot in the supplement industry. Mm. And we'll talk about vitamin D in a second as a raw material. But over the COVID period, it got me thinking a lot about vitamin D because we're all you know talking about the the correlations with um, severe cases and hospitalization and low vitamin D. But 
everyone was turning towards synthetic vitamin D. And in these really high doses, I was quite concerned because it doesn't Mm. exist in nature like that. It exists with vitamin A and vitamin K and this beautiful package that we find in something like cod liver oil as an alternative. And it just, you know, it reminds us to go back to nature rather than to try and get too isolated because that's not how the human body works. Yeah, absolutely. I had a client come to see me who I don't know if she'd done this herself or if someone had recommended it to her, but she was on 10,000 international units of vitamin D. And her. It was in every protocol and everybody was was doing it. Yeah. What? Are you like and and no. their vitamin D is like a hundred? <laughs> they don't really need anything, but everyone's taking it because it's on all the internet protocols. I yeah. can't tell you how many times I saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So with vitamin D, again, it is really, really shown in the literature. I think to be beneficial for Hashimoto's, but I think it's really like a case by case basis, right? Like if you are vitamin D deficient, and we've been able mm. to identify that in your blood test result, then yes, you are going to benefit. But again. I always say to my clients that if you have this deficiency presence, if you have a vitamin D deficiency, you have a sunlight deficiency, like you're not Mm. getting outside enough. That's often what this is representing or most commonly. So yes, maybe let's introduce a supplement depending on how deficient you are to really help move you forward in sort of your journey quicker and, and, and reduce those antibodies quicker and in a really controlled way. But let's also think about like, you're not getting outside enough. Mm-hmm. Like that is a real problem from a lifestyle perspective. And there's so many other things we get from the sun that we don't measure on a blood test that we probably haven't even studied yet. <laughs> yeah, it's huge. I think this is definitely a case by case. And that, that that's why I like to do more comprehensive testing. Like if yeah. we know that those raw materials, zinc is the last one I want to talk yeah. about today. And I know you mentioned some others, but let's just keep it quite specific to the four that I, you know, you, you, can, either, you can either easily test, um, like hopefully your doctor is open to doing vitamin mm. D and zinc. They're less open to selenium and iodine but that's why I send my clients to ice cream to do the thyroid cofactors test which I've done myself recently it's half blood and half urine so it's possible to do it's very affordable I think in an ideal world to have all that information is really powerful because I just think yeah again blind spots can be a bit risky but equally yeah, if someone doesn't have a zinc deficiency, well, you can pretty much assume that's not one of the drivers here. So that's where the testing can allow you to really fine-tune what is the nutrient deficiency or which law, which raw material are you lacking personally. Mm. Yeah, I think zinc is one we're really, really going to commonly see because mm. of its involvement in stomach acid, which is not really something we touched on today. But stomach acid, if you don't have produce enough of it or if you're not making adequate amounts, then you are going to have a lot of nutrient deficiencies present Mm. um, regardless of what is coming in through your diet. And that's where I think being able to look at someone's diet symptoms, but also kind of like the potential mismatch between what nutrients are present in their body and how much is coming in is like really important as well, because you could say, for example, have these deficiencies, like have zinc deficiency and you know, just supplementing with more zinc isn't necessarily going to fix the issue if there's mm. if there's low stomach acid and that kind of thing present as well. So that I get that's where working with a practitioner I think is helpful because they can help to kind of look at it more broadly than just say there's low zinc, let's fix that with a supplement. <laughs> oh, I know, right? And then copper levels, which I often think yes. about in pregnancy, you know, obviously estrogen is a big driver of, yes. of copper. And when you're pregnant, well, you don't want to do anything about your estrogen. Like that's what you need. But if it's driving your copper up and your zinc down, and then you're seeing some thyroid quote unquote issues that are really circumstantial, well, some of that will be your pregnancy journey and then acknowledging what additional nutrients you need to support you during that period of time, which will look really different postpartum as your estrogen normalizes, you know? So it is quite circumstantial, circling back to what we were saying before around, you know, a woman, a a woman rather across her lifespan, the fluctuations Mm. that we see in teenage years in like, so early reproductive years, pregnancy, perimenopause, postmenopause. So that's fascinating to me. And the other thing I was going to say about the stomach acid is, yeah, just to reiterate, like you can be eating a beautiful whole food diet. You can be focusing on all these raw materials, but if you're not absorbing those raw materials, then you will see a deficiency mm. in your thyroid hormones. 
So how is thyroxine yeah. going to help? It's it's yeah. just not. So I, that's why I'm always a massive proponent of the foundations because sorting out your gastric secretions is, is important for many reasons. Yeah. And, you know, iron deficiencies, obviously, we talk about a lot. So I just love that we can do so much with such incredible foundations. Mm. And I wanted to circle back to the testing. This came up this uh, last week for a client who reached out to me firstly online and we had a consult last week. So she's um, in her third trimester and her TSH is really low. And I think she was really quite concerned that something had happened to her thyroid, like that she had, you know, quite a lot of thyroid damage and had like a big sort of journey ahead of her in terms of repair. But because TSH is routinely tested, we were able to go back through her previous labs and see that her TSH was normal, like 1.17 around that vicinity when she was last not pregnant. (laughs) And now her TSH is really low, but that's been sort of the onset of pregnancy and Mm -hmm. certainly some of the nutrient deficiencies that we've been talking about. And just even her unpacking that with me around the testing timeline. So because she had tested regularly enough, we could see the influence of the season that she was in, that Mm -hmm. pregnancy season. You could just see the stress fall away from her to start to understand that this is not like a chronic thing of hers. It's something that's very circumstantial that we'll address differently now to carry her to term and then differently again postpartum when that hormonal picture, like I said, will look very different. Yeah, yeah. And I think in general just testing is so beneficial. Like Mm. you should really, it's like taking your car to the mechanic to get service. Like you (laughs) should be not waiting until you have those lights on the dashboard, like you've explained, and just at least I think every six to 12 months looking mm. at getting those blood tests done because with some symptoms of, uh, of deficiencies are, are really like a night and day. So like low iron is one that is pretty clear. You can, you, you get tired, you get shortness of breath, you know, you might get the dark circles under your eyes. It's very obvious. But some of the other ones like vitamin D or zinc, even iodine, you might not pick up on them. Mm. So I think testing in general is like, yeah, just everyone should be doing that every so often. And I think thyroid symptoms can be quite broad. You know, they present differently in every person. And often if there is a bit of like, you know, anxiety involved Mm. in in low iron as well, actually, I see that being misinterpreted as a Zoloft deficiency. (laughs) Yeah. And cheek, obviously. Yeah. I think as well, in general, when you've gotten used to dealing with something, if it is a chronic standing issue, that becomes your new normal. That becomes mm. just how you feel day to day. And so it's just becomes, you know, like the really common one is, oh, I've got, you know, two kids and I'm tired and whatever it is, that becomes the kind of reason for the symptoms that you might be mm-hmm. experiencing. But often there are these sort of, there are these issues going on under the service that can make a really big difference to how you're feeling day to day. And in correcting those, you'll find you actually have a new normal that's far better than what you're kind of putting up with. I know, right? Like just (laughs) sharing my own little journey online last week, like the number of sort of responses and DMs I got from mums who have just been writing off their symptoms because of hashtag Mm. mum life. You know, if I could just point them in the right direction to expect more from how they feel and to know there's a way to identify the root cause with either going straight to your doctor and going via Medicare or spending less than $300 once a year. Like I know everyone's got a different income state. So don't let me sound too flippant here, but it's, it's, it's nice to know it's not thousands because I think that can be a bit of a story that sits next to testing to know that it actually can be something you can budget towards to me is also really powerful information because this, you know, if, especially because we're on the topic of thyroid and we know that very often only TSH is going to be offered. Mm. We just have to accept that's what the system is like at the moment. But to know that we can easily go online or work with a practitioner, hopefully work with a practitioner to get it interpreted correctly, of course, and get a lot more information once or twice a year to optimize our health to me is, is where we've got to be spending our time, money and, and effort. Yeah. Yeah. And in the long term, like it's always going to save you money, right? Because you'll end mm-hmm. up 
healthier, not sick, not taking medications, not taking days off work, all the rest of those sort Absolutely. of long-term benefits. Absolutely. So obviously the thyroid is probably a topic that we could talk about till eternity because it's, <laughs> it's not as simple as, you know, as some areas of health, but we will have additional episodes together, especially around the nodules moving forward. But um, of course, any questions that come out of today, um, you and I will get together and do some, some even further episodes. But just before we wrap up today, is there anything else that you wanted to add to this specific conversation? No, I think overall, just to summarize, like it, testing is so important, proper mm-hmm. testing, not just testing TSH. And then I think some really key themes out of today is really that if you are taking thyroxine, like what else are you doing? Mm-hmm. Because that should not be it's basically not going to be very effective as the only thing if that's what you're doing. So looking at what else you might be doing to um, support yourself, whether it is an autoimmune condition or even low thyroid function. And what were some of the other themes? Yeah, just really, I think, (laughs) testing that thyroxine is not a standalone intervention. Um, I think the nutrients, I'm I'm big on those nutrient nutrient, deficiencies. Seeing as that's like no one, I don't know how people think about the body, right? Because we're Mm. all really different. But if you think about the building blocks that you require to make your thyroid hormone, to make iron, you know, et cetera, and that beautiful dance that goes on Mm. without you even knowing about it, like that's where it can be so powerful to acknowledge, okay, not only the diet, but the stomach acid and the testing to get some more clarity around your individual situation and say why you're having those unique thyroid examples. Yeah, for sure. Micronutrients where it's at, like, you know, proteins, Mm. carbohydrates and fats are are kind of like the starting point, but it's so Mm. much deeper than that. And I think people really need to, I guess, foster an appreciation for that because lack of or, you know, toxicity of these nutrients can cause very real significant symptoms Mm. in our body because it's literally what our body runs off. Yeah, the raw materials for sure. Well, I've loved today's conversation. Thank you again for joining me and I'm sure our listeners um, have just learned so much. And I would like to put the call out for questions specific to the thyroid because it is a topic that I think people are sort of, you know, desperate to learn more and equally to understand if their symptoms do correlate to a thyroid issue. So please out reach out to Selene and or myself if you have questions and we'll regroup again soon on the show to dive even deeper into thyroid health. So thank you, Selene. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Holistic Health Chats. If you enjoyed this episode, I would be so grateful if you could leave me a rating and review in iTunes, as this allows me to help more women just like you. Holistic Health Chats is not intended to replace medical advice, so please consult with your practitioner before making any changes to your current health. If you are ready to take your health to the next level and would like some personalized support, the next step is booking in for a complimentary health chat. Please head to selendouglas.com forward slash book for more information.